Hi, and welcome back to the show. Today, I'm joined by Barbara Turley. She is the founder and CEO of The Virtual Hub. It is an outsourcing firm focusing specifically on virtual assistants. And Barbara runs this firm quite different to the rest of the pack. Barbara is really focused on, well, she has a different system for recruiting and onboarding and training her virtual assistants before they are deployed to clients. So it's a really fascinating conversation. Barbara is also an operational and organizational wizard. Uh, so we talk in depth about that. It's a really great far ranging conversation with Barbara. As always, if you want any of the show notes, go to outsourceaccelerator.com slash podcast. Enjoy. This podcast is brought to you by Outsource Accelerator. We are the world's leading outsourcing marketplace and advisory. We help big and small businesses with their outsourcing needs, and we can help you too. We cover everything from offshore business and staffing strategy, optimal outsourcing structures, implementations, and fully managed services. If you are already outsourcing, about to start, or are somewhere in between, then we can ensure that you get the best from outsourcing. That's the best prices, best terms, and of course, the best results from your offshore operations. The Outsource Accelerator Marketplace now covers over 3,000 outsourcing firms, representing a global workforce of over 5 million people. We also host this leading outsourcing podcast, publish inside outsourcing, and have over 15,000 pages of content on the site. Because we span the entire market, we can ensure that you get the best deal possible. Get in touch today. Visit us at outsourceaccelerator.com slash quote. Also, if you find this podcast interesting or valuable, please share it. We have now produced hundreds of episodes featuring the outsourcing world's most prominent luminaries. Please show your support by sharing this podcast today. Barbara, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Great, Derek. Thanks so much for having me on. It's it's good to come on again. I know I was on in the past a few years ago, so it's nice to be back. Yeah, and it's always great to catch up with you, Barbara. I'm I'm always fascinated by your your journey and your your personal circumstances and your business. So it's uh, really fantastic to catch up, Barbara. I, we were chatting just before the the show, of course, and you said that you basically develop your own VAs from scratch. Um, it's probably a good place to start. Do you want to explain the process for um, you generating your supply of qualified candidates? Yeah, sure. So I think very early on, I mean, look, I didn't have a background in recruiting or HR or outsourcing. I had actually never really even been to the Philippines when I accidentally started this business. And I say accidentally because I I just started finding some VAs for some clients I was doing business coaching for many years ago now. Um, and in the first year, I found myself recruiting VAs, you know, and I found myself in this business and I thought, oh, I'm quite enjoying this. I think I'll, looks like there's a business in this. I'll, I'll keep going. And in that first year, 
uh, it was very tumultuous. You know, you would find that I would recruit and, and maybe this was my lack of experience in recruiting, but you would find people with great resumes and sort of tick all the boxes, but on the job, they just didn't seem to perform or there was issues. Um, and then you had some people that just on the job, it was very apparent that they needed more training. Uh, good people, you know, but just needed more direction. So early on, I started a very basic training program to try to help with these issues. And rolling forward eight years now, I mean, the, the training program, what I've learned very quickly is that sometimes the best people are those who actually have no experience, but they have the right smarts. We know what we're now looking for. They have the right smarts. They have the right attitude, the energy they can be trained, you know, and some of those things are things that you can't teach. You have to hire for that. All the other things about being a VA, to be honest, most of it is very trainable if you've got the right training programs. So today what we do is we, we hire people for ourselves. We're not actually a recruiter. So we never say to a client, give us your brief and we'll go out and find what it is you're looking for. Instead, what we do every month is we're going out looking for great people that over the years we have refined that to, to know what it is that we're looking for. We hire them on full salaries and benefits from day one, and we put them straight into our learning and development uh, programs. And they can be there from anywhere from one to three months before we start to look at our client pipeline and go, okay, so what, what sort of client demand do we have? And who are we going to position uh, in front of this client to integrate them into that client account? And our success rate from that is very high. You know, it's very rare that a mm. client will say, can you show me more people? Usually they say, oh, my God, those three were great. And and we prepare them well for the account. So we um, we do that. And then post going on to a client account, because you can't train every VA on every tool and it wouldn't be commercially viable to do that. We then work with that client account to work out, well, what are the tools they're using? What are the processes this VA is doing? And we do personalized training roadmaps that we work on with that VA based on the client account thereafter. And that sort of continues continues on basically um, as we sort of grow that person so that's been the model it's very successful for us people have different views on recruitment and you know some say it's an art some say it's a sign i i say it's really just kind of potluck i i don't think you ever really know who you're getting until they're kind of three months in the in the building mm -hmm. and you know you really get to know each other and and each other's work capabilities and processes um, this is a really good way. Like, what do you think about recruiting? As you've gone over the years, do you get better at it? Is there a sort of reduced failure rate? But what I really like about your sort of incubation period of one to three months is I assume then you're really getting to know that person and the work. And so it's you're not relying so much on the interview process or the, or the recruitment process. You're actually seeing them do the work before you yes. deploy so I have a lot to share on this. So in the early days, I figured out that I needed this training for VAs. And then I thought, well, this serves two purposes. I get to train them and I get to, you know, maybe I'm a control freak. I get to control the product that goes to the client. That was what I wanted to really do. I wanted to be like our VAs, our look and feel. It's always the same experience for a client. So that was number one. But then I also had all these character issues and, you know, the, the stuff that happens, I'm sure it happens everywhere in the world, but it's pretty rife in the Philippines. People going AWOL, people saying they're working and they're not, people not showing up for work, all of the stories, the drama. And I thought, well, if we sit them in our training programs and actually have them on our time for a while, you get to sit at this stage, we were office based. You literally see the whites of people's eyes for, for a month or two. Mm -hmm. 
And it's very easy to hide for a week, but very difficult to hide for two months. So we started to realize that we, we, we got to filter more. So it was like an extended recruiting process, really. So that was number one. So yes, I agree. It gives us a chance to do that on our time and not mess up the client account. So we get to see problems before we move to client pairing. Um, the second thing I did, I like to flip things on, on, on its head. So I flipped the model on its head. And then I looked at the recruiting model. And I was like, anyone can say anything in interviews. And some people are great at interviewing. You know, they're really good at it um, and they can shine. So instead of doing the interview first, that's actually the last step in our recruiting process now. And we have a completely metrics-based, very faceless um, testing program. It's actually, it's actually quite, quite excruciating to put people through it. But those who make it to the interview phase, um, and, and people still fail at that phase because we know how to pick for character traits and things we're looking for. But by doing it that way, we... we we didn't increase our hiring rate. Like, so we still only hire 1.5% of applicants, but our failure rate post-hire is low. Mm. So the churn rate once they're in is low. And we're aiming, and usually the churn happens in the first two months on our time. And that's probably maybe 10%, maybe, maybe 7 or 8% of candidates will fail in the training program. And what do you get people to do in your organization before they're sort of handed out to clients? Are you kind of creating work, you know, kind of like digging yeah. holes in the backyard kind of thing? Or is it real work that you have ongoing? Uh, it's a lot. It's a lot of stuff. So initially, a, a lot of it is just training with uh, practicing and doing quizzes and we do workshops and a lot of it's very theory based. And then what you want to have is obviously hands on. So we have, I mean, it has taken us years to build this. And we have a team of five in the in the learning and organizational development department, which I'm very proud of. It's We're like a, a learning and organizational development company, really, that produces VAs as opposed to a recruitment agency. So we are quite different. Um, but eventually, you know, we have built out massive amounts of uh, practice tasks. Some of it's real. So our marketing team often requires a lot of uh, SEO and link building and this sort of thing. And we putting them in those teams, we rotate them around certain teams as well. So they may help out in the recruiting teams. They may help out in the ops teams. And we have developed areas within each department where we can slot people in and out really quickly to do work. And mm -hmm. that serves two functions. We get to get some work done from the people that we have on payroll. But also we get to see how do they perform under pressure and on the job, on the real job, right? Because a lot of this work is VA work. Uh, and that's really how yeah, we and it's do sort it. of Sometimes picking up and work. running with new jobs, isn't it? With little introduction, yes. can they sort of and they get, get feedback? An hour of, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. We give them a process. Really We're like, there's your, there's your training. There's your process. Boom. We need this done by tomorrow. And mm. it's interesting, you know, because they're reporting to their own to Filipinos on my team you know, on our teams, sometimes the Filipinos will be harder on them than the clients. So they're, they're harder, harder markers because their expectations are, you know, that these, these guys, and, and, and we get, but they all perform well. I mean, we, we do well. I'm very proud of how, how we do really. And you have the benefit of sort of giving that same task to 10 or 20 or 30 or 50 people over the months or years. And then yes. it's very easy for you to identify if, if people we know who's are struggling on picking it up. Yeah. yeah. We know who's any good. Um, you know, and also, I suppose, when a client comes to us, typically, now, there are times when crunch happens where, where we have more demand than supply, which, which, but we try to keep this measured. Now, now, this is the hardest task that I have, 
is to try to measure like how do you keep demand and supply balanced such that you don't have 50 people sitting on the bench which has happened right on the payroll um, or you have six and eight week waits for clients um, mm -hmm. so we have developed we've dialed in the systems around that internally quite heavily so that we can manage supply and demand and we do it quite well i have to say there's only about one time per year where we all go oh no we're in trouble here which where there's a glut or there's a a glut of demand or a glut of supply. Um, and that can get a bit hairy. But I think where I developed that skill, you know, I spent 10 years on an equity trading floor where I was a market maker matching supply and demand. And I got very good at, at, at figuring out how do you actually trade supply and demand like that. So I think that's probably mm. where I got that skill from. It's fascinating, isn't it? And, you know, your little uh, machine or engine, you, you've got the carry costs of too many people on the bench and it's kind of, but it is an asset sitting there, isn't it? That you can then yeah, it's like product. sell. And, yeah. It, it's yeah. like product in a warehouse. You kind of have to go, right, we've got a bench, but it means we can deploy people very quickly. And, and as you know, and, and listeners will know, by the time somebody comes looking for a VA, unfortunately, you'll say to them, when do you need this VA? And usually the answer is yesterday. So we're like, we can have someone done in a week. Like we can have them in, mm. in your account, trained, ready to go, hit the ground running in about a week. So that's quite powerful. Pre and I find, you know, with, oh, with Outsource Accelerator focusing on the sale aspect of the industry, I do find that a major flaw or a major weakness of the industry generally is that it's a very long sales cycle. And when people do decide that they want to go ahead with offshoring, then it can be four to eight to 12 weeks before they actually find their candidates. And so if you can uh, sidestep all of that with ready-made candidates, it's really, it, it's an exciting yeah. prospect. And it must, you must certainly see the, the sales cycle compact a lot. Ours is shorter, definitely. And I think, you know, for any of the listeners thinking about this, you know, why, why is this model? I mean, I, I believe, of course, I'm talking my own book, but I fundamentally believe this model is better because what I say to clients is, you know, if you're already, you're already stretched, we know that typically people need someone yesterday. I mean, it's just the nature of it. We, we tend not to move forward until we actually need it and then it's too late. Um, but you, if you're already busy, the last thing you want is to get rounds and rounds of resumes coming through and then you have to sit through rounds of interviews. None of our clients do that. They will see two to three profiles. Uh, those people will be prepped and ready and primed for that account before they ever meet that client. We send them in. I always talk about it like the spa. We send them to the spa before they go to the client and they arrive prepped for that client. And typically the feedback from the clients we get is, wow, the, 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 those three were really, really great. That, that's really good for me. And literally about 2% of accounts will say, could I see another one or two people? And then they'll pick mm -hmm. on the second round. But the, the success rate on round one is 90 minutes of a meetup. We don't even call it an interview or candidates because they're already hired. Um, so that's number one of the model. It's, it's very quick for the client. Um, mm. Number two, I guess what I would say is sometimes clients will feel guilty about canceling a VA contract because that person could end up with no income and lose their job because their income is tied to a client account in most of the other models. In our model, you can scale us up and scale us down with 30 days notice and that person will not lose their job. Now, that's tricky to manage, but our job is to manage our supply of VAs, and we've now invested mm -hmm. in that person. There's no way we're letting that person out into the market on floating. We would rather put them back on the bench, maybe do some more training, maybe give them a project that we have going, 
and then get them onto another client account. So it's like stock, you know, we, we, we have inventory. Tricky so to manage. By way, yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? And it, it's, a, it's a novel approach to, you know, the, obviously the outsourcing business model has a lot of different variations, but it is, it's relatively unique, your approach to this. And um, you are very contained, very managed, and you're, I suppose you're then able to manage the quality and presentation yes. of your product um, so mm-hmm. much, so much better. I suppose by way of sort of background introduction, you are the founder and CEO of the Virtual Hub, um, and you specifically specialize in virtual assistants, so don't you? And so yes. this model doesn't necessarily apply to an architect or accountant. It, it kind of gets no. hard, but you focus on one uh, core service, and so that enables you to to do what you do in terms of um, building up supply and and managing Absolutely. the quality and uh, yeah. Yes, and I guess you know I, I I sort of productized what it was we were doing very early on. I saw this. I think that this is actually the sometimes the benefit of coming into an industry with zero knowledge and zero experience. I mean, I I have a lot of war wounds and learned things the hard way. Uh, but I think when you come in with a fresh pair of eyes, I looked at the industry and thought, yeah, there's a lot of holes there. There's a lot of problems. There's a lot of churn going on. Um, and the market that we service is I was able to productize this up and say, OK, most businesses. And I mean, I was a business coach prior, so I kind of had a had a knowledge of most businesses. Businesses are a machine, as we know. A lot of people don't see it that way. But at the end of the day, every business, regardless of industry or what they're doing, really, what are we doing? We're creating product or offer and shipping or delivering product or offer. And every single business in the world is doing that at its core function. You can hire A players in marketing and sales and all these things. My philosophy is, though, if you want to build a machine that is a business and the asset value of that will be higher if you do it this way, build it as a machine and make sure that, yes, you have these A players at the top, but you want to make sure that the most expensive time and energy that your company is paying for with these A players is not being used on support roles, support functions. Those should be pushed offshore. And we specialize in the supporting of businesses so that you allow your most expensive time and energy to push the business forward and not get bogged down in the weeds of busy work, which is what's actually happening. I'm seeing this in companies all over the world. You know, you've got frustrated and fed up employees Mm. because they're they're they can't move the needle because they're tied up with there's been studies done that anywhere from 20 to 60 percent of their day is taken up with repeatable recurring tasks that could and should be delegated and what is the extent have you ever been tempted to expand your machine to other roles because what happens when a client says you know these vas are absolutely tremendous can you do accounting do you you know is there then leakage and you say well we don't offer that, but the bloke down the road does. You know, inevitably there's a sort of a leakage there. How do you manage that in terms of your your focus of your mission? Okay, so yes, so the answer is that we do do it for clients very selectively. So we have another team that is a specialized recruiting team. So yes, we can. You know, because when, once a client is in and they've got VAs with us and they're like, "Hey, I really need a, you know an accountant or or, or whatever." We can go out and recruit that. I will be honest, though, in looking at both models, I, I, I commend the other outsourcing businesses because it is excruciating to do that specialized model. And we have found it to be very expensive to run it, to get success with it. Um, once, we get a, once we get a good hit and we get a home run with it, that's okay to manage it ongoing is fine. 
Um, but I, I, I have found that personally to be quite difficult. And there's been moments I've said, do we want to do this? So we only do it selectively if a client really wants it, but we would never advertise that to do that. Mm-hmm. It is a tough industry, isn't it? Because it's all based on recruitment and getting the right candidate through the door. And anyone in business generally knows it is a bit hidden miss, isn't it? You know, and part of the yeah. product outsourcing offers is the successful recruitment. And you can only guarantee that as much as any employment is, is you know, accurate or a good guarantee. And it, it is a bit hit and miss. So you're good to yeah. sort of sidestep that. What what about then the next, uh, the next challenge is, what about uh, VA creep? When, you know, they start as an assistant and then they show promise and then all of a sudden, you know, I, I assume this is a good thing, of course, but the client then has 20 VAs doing all of the marketing and all of the content and all of the sales and, you know, they effectively become staff. Is that, do you see that a lot in your business? You know, it's funny. I You would think, you know, you would think that would be a major problem. Uh, and it may become one, you know, I have thought about this. I think what clients like about our model, though, is that we sort of become a partner. And when they start to have large teams, they think that they would want them all under their own banner until they start to realize that once you get a large team, we give you a results coach to manage that team as part of the deal. And you also have a client success manager that's liaising with you on, you know, so we've clients who go, I need another one. I need another one. They just send an email to the client success manager. And we've got a, we, we've got people ready to go and we handle the training. So they don't really, they like this, right? We can just, we've built uh, training programs as well that are for specific client accounts so that we can onboard a VA very quickly for them. So we become very much a partner in the business. The other thing they like is the scale us up, scale us down model, which can feel scary, but you know, when they, lose a client contract and they have to let go two of the people, usually we're short VAs, to be honest. Usually the demand is higher than what the supply is. So we're like, okay, stick those ones over on this other account. Mm. You know, and they're already experienced then. So um, look, it is dicey. It, it is a, it's a tricky business to be in. I don't think clients really appreciate how difficult a business it is because you're dealing with people, mm-hmm. you know? And I think the other thing our clients like is that we have a very strong focus on culture. Now, this is all driven by me. Um, I'm a huge fan of the uh, Vern Harnish scaling up methodology. If anyone has read that book, it's a fantastic book. Vern actually became a client of ours uh, um, through me doing those courses and and following their methodology. And a huge part of that methodology is, is about the people pillar of the business and, you know, measuring employee net promoter score and, you know, every, every, three, four months, we have massive town halls where we do huge surveys and we ask the people, like everything in the company's kind of been built from the people and from what they mm. tell us, you know, within reason. I mean, you know, you'd like to pay more and you'd like to do all these things. But, and I think clients like that too, because we do all the team buildings and all the dinners and the fun and the Christmas party. And we invest a lot in that. Again, it's, it's cost, but it has to be done. Yeah, that's fascinating. And then the clients as well. How do you limit the expectations of clients that maybe want that unicorn VA that can do everything and really is more of an extension of the workplace as opposed to an assistant of someone you know that's in place, capable doing it, of um, existing processes? You know that that sort of inevitable expectation that you know they can do this. Yeah. It won't be a problem until it is, sort of thing. How do you manage those expectations with yeah. clients? First of all, we are brutally honest on the discovery call. 
we measure we we stop that from right from the get-go so we're very deep on that discovery call in the beginning to say you know we, we dig into what they want to do what their expectations are and we're like we can do this bit but you know, you might get a unicorn that could do that bit, but we wouldn't advise it. So we prefer to undersell and overdeliver rather than oversell and underdeliver. So we're we're brutally honest. And in podcasts like this, I'm brutally honest. And I'm, I did a podcast myself for a long time where I was, I'm very uh, transparent about what's possible and, and what's not, you know, and when you're expecting too much. At the end of the day, I do say this as well. A virtual assistant is an assistant. They're not a specialist. Mm. And I think that's where people are getting this wrong. An assistant is an assistant um, there to execute process that has been designed and delivered by somebody else. Now, can they work with you and the two of you collaborate together to create a process? Of course you can. Can they build a process for you? Maybe, I, you know, depends how good your your uh, instruction is and how, how, how good your delegation ability is and how systemized your business is. A lot of it hinges on the actual operational framework that the business has. So uh, it's just being realistic. Yeah, yeah. And it's, I think it is critical, isn't it, that you do set clear expectations from the beginning. And it takes a lot of not wanting to be condescending, but it, it's more about training the client, isn't it, rather than the staff, yes. because the staff are used to this, they're, you know, this is their gig. Um, and it's really yeah. kind of just setting expectations for the client, for the onboarding, for the process, having all of the processes in place and having them clear, uh, and then handing them over. And, and that's good business, right? I mean, forget VAs for a second. Forget the Philippines for a second. This is good business. You know, having having systemized, properly structured operations and good operational frameworks where there is transparency, visibility, you know, not only means that you can now work in a remote environment successfully. So a lot of the reason companies are trying to run back to the office and not do this very successfully at the moment, in my view, is because they don't have the right operational framework that allows the level of visibility that you need in transparency to work in a remote environment. But when you do have it set up that way, uh, then it's very easy to integrate offshore teams. Um, and also the other thing I would say, a lot of clients look at a process and they're like, unless they can do 100% of the process, I'm not interested. But what happens if a VA can do 90% of it and you only have to do 10%? I mean, that's still your time freed up or one of your key people. That is valuable, very, very valuable. So it's about breaking process down and saying, well, you know, steps one to 10, eight of them can be done by a VA and Mary over in sales has to do step one and two or, or whatever, but it doesn't have to be all or nothing. Yeah, I don't think a lot of people, it, it requires sort of conscious engineering of the processes and, and to some degree the org chart in a business, doesn't it? Like you've got your traditional yes. org chart in a company when you hire locally and you've got people going into an office. And then, you know, if you tweak it, like it doesn't directly translate across but if you just spend a little bit of time analyzing that org chart tweaking it a bit tweaking the processes then you can really reap the benefits of global employment and of course the cost savings and having access to sort of wider pools of talent yes but it's not a direct translation but that that tweaking that engineering it's not that hard is it but people sort of expect a direct translation or it's all off they do and I think this is a problem, again, forgetting VAs for a second or even Philippines or global staff. I mean, I think one of the fundamental problems a lot of businesses face is that they do not want to, they don't see value in and they don't want to spend the time on operational efficiency. But what they don't realize is the more time that you spend on operational efficiency, 
the higher the value of your business later. And it will pay dividends to you as the business owner into perpetuity, the more work you put into that in the early days. I know this because I've done it. You know, it's, um, I mean, I built a business living across two continents, fully remote, having two children and working part time. And we have 350 staff. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I know everything that's going on on my phone. I mean, we're, I'm a big fan of, of uh, tools like Asana, for example, and, you know, running top-down strategy into bottom-up execution and having it all show in one online platform where everyone is collaborating and doing work. And then it makes it very easy. You don't need to be in the same place. And offshore team members can join in. That sounds a dream, doesn't it? You know, I'm actually going through that phase again at the moment with my business. I'm just sort of doing too much and spread too thin. And so yes. I've read a lot of books. I apply, uh, you know, in scaling up to some degree in my last business. I haven't in this business, um, but I'm about to get two EAs to manage me effectively and manage the workflows to me. Um but it's hard, isn't it? And again, it's that yes. sort of conscious engineering of what you're doing, what the organization is doing. Um, but again, it's it's sort of essential. Well, I, I, can I, give, I can give you like, an example. Yeah, yeah, I could give you an example of what happened to me recently. So recently I decided to go into LinkedIn quite deeply. And initially, as you know, with process, you sort of have to do it yourself first before you figure out how mm. to delegate it. I think people try and delegate too early sometimes. So I went into this and it probably over two or three months, I was like, oh, this is painful every day doing this myself. But then it took a while for me to figure out what is the actual system here? How does this work? What system here and what bits can VAs do? And now I don't, I do very little of it and it's all delegated out to VAs and it's done. The system is built, but it took time and it was a bit, little bit excruciating, but we got there and now I'm not doing it anymore so I can move on to the next thing. But LinkedIn is running. Yeah, yeah. I try and I, I um, tell this to my teams as well. There are, and as well with outsourcing, again, all of these sort of principles of running a business apply to how to run an offshore team. But th there's three very different roles within a team. There's the architect that actually has to, act to build and design a process. Then there's the manager and then there's the maker or the doer. And the doer. they're really yeah. three separate roles. Now, of course, in the beginning in a startup, it's the founder that has to do everything. Um, but it, as the team grows, then you still need that architect that kind of builds and designs the system, does the first few iterations, tests it, make sure it's okay. And then you can pass it down to, so depending on the scale, like a manager that oversees it and then the maker that actually does it. And yes. you can't get, you can't mix those up. If you just hand a task to a maker to create a task, they won't, it, it will never be done, you know, and the architecture and they don't of that have the expertise. ever work. They, exactly. Yeah, they yeah, don't yeah. have the expertise. That, yeah. That's an over-expectation of the role. In fact, actually, the architecture piece is so important to get right. And I found accidentally that I was quite good at it. I didn't realize that this was a skill I had. And then I had a lot of clients asking, you know, can you help us to build some of those systems that you've built? And this was outside of VAs. So actually, two years ago, um, we launched another arm to the business where and we only do it for clients at the moment, but we run um, we have an entire operational efficiency consulting and implementation team. And what they right. do is, you know, if you've got VAs, then our consultant sits in Sydney, Australia, actually. He gets on a call with you and deep dives into kind of what the pain points are, what you're trying to do. And we architect a system 
even a, you know, a platform process and how the people would interact with it. And you can either go and implement that yourself or we have the team that can build it for you. So like putting in Asana builds and stuff like that. And, and that's been quite successful. And we've seen the problems that businesses are having. And some of them are having problems with VAs that are not actually to do with the VAs. It's to do with the operational framework. And then they get more success with VAs post the work being done, of course. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? And that's similar to like Gino Wickman's traction, isn't it? Where there's implementers yes. and I can't remember the other one, the creators or whatever. Uh, you need yeah. you need both types, yeah. But do you find that if you you know rent out your um, architect capability, is that scalable? That's really hard, isn't it? And you know you yeah. have that because you're a you know a, an entrepreneur through and through. Um, but it's then hard to scale that to to teams. Yeah, like um, it's really yes, hard, it is. It? You know, that's almost it, like it, management it, consulting. Yes, it is. It is. Now, the clients that we're doing it for, I will share, are are larger. Uh, you know, so that it may, it has been worthwhile for it. We've done it for some smaller clients, but usually the engagement will go from anywhere from three months to we're we're in one that's probably going to take eighteen months at the moment. You know, so it's kind of almost like a. It is a slight subscription type model, but doesn't go on for long. But we're okay to do it because our core business is VAs, really. Uh, but this consulting around the side is also, it's a nice revenue stream and clients want it and, and we can make a material difference. So yes, we're, we're playing with how to put that, but it's, it's always going to be a side part of the model as opposed to the core. The core is people and VAs and getting them working properly. Sure. Do you still use the scaling up and have you modified it, customized it um, a yes. lot or is it pretty much out of the box? Uh, I think it's pretty out of the box. I mean, I think if you follow the scaling up methodology, it's something, what I love about it is that you can do it once and then you're going to go back and revisit it every year and you're going to find a new thing to do. So, you know, I did it. If, I, I read the book. This is the truth. I, my first time going to the Philippines. I sat on a flight and I brought the book with me and I read the book the entire flight. And I came back after that trip and pretty much dissected the business and rebuilt it as best I could based on the book. And then a couple of years later, I did the online course and that was huge. I brought our head of ops and head of HR into the course with me from the Philippines. Mm. We all did it together and we heavily focused on the people part. The people pillar was enormous and it was a lot of work. It was like 18 months, two years of work, to be honest. Um, and then strategy, the other pillars, uh, one of them I'm going back to now, um, the cash pillar, you know, there's the strategy, cash, execution. We did execution quite well and people. Um, but, you know, I revisit it every year and do another little bit, you know. Uh, and then, of course, the next step up would be to get a coach. We haven't gone to that route yet, but um, I am a big follower of the methodology. Right. Well done. It's really good. It's really good to have a clear operating system for a business isn't it you know it's uh, yes. and then but it, it takes then the discipline to actually uh, do it <laughs> well it's freedom and, and, in a box really i mean it, it provides you a lot of freedom you know I, I for me and the more the more i do it and the more i delegate and the more more i systemize things and structure it properly the more freedom i get so recently we implemented objectives and key results and and put them all in Asana and did this whole waterfall technique and everything with this. Um, and it has reduced the amount of meetings I have by 50%, which is material yeah, for my day. Thing. Yeah. 
I, I say we don't have meetings anymore. We have love chats <laughs> where we just catch up, you know, right. not to, uh, because the updates are all happening. The status updates are happening in relation to the results we're trying to drive and it's happening inside of Asana. So anyway, that's just so that, you know, and again, you can Gosh, do that at a VA exciting, level. You can, yeah. yeah, yeah. I love it. I love all this stuff now. Yeah. That's amazing. So you have evolved over the, over the 10 years, you've got 350 staff, but of course nothing remains static. Um, we've obviously had COVID, the whole world now is remote. How have you seen the industry kind of evolve over the 10 years? Also, I think to the credit of the industry, everyone, you know, 10, 15 years ago, no one knew about offshoring and really how available it was and whether it was possible. Now, kind of everyone knows, um, but it's more about, you know, really the details and, and getting them over that line. How have you seen the industry evolve and how has, has that impacted your business? I've seen a lot more traditional industries uh, now be open to it. They're still not doing it, but they're open to it. So the conversations, um, I think that, you know, years ago you would have people on the call and their biggest fear would be things like trust. How do I trust this person? And then everyone went to work from home during COVID and you realize, how do you trust anyone? I mean, you just, it's not, it's, it's not just in the Philippines that this is an issue. And then, of course, the the systems have come up the ranks too, the tech stacks, you know, to deal with these fears and these issues. So um, I think people's questions these days have changed from how do I trust somebody to how do I integrate them successfully into my business and know that they're doing the work, things like that. So I guess that's our responsibility in the industry to help you know, uh, more and more clients. I mean, I think it's a no brainer. I don't know why any business would not have an offshore team strategy. And of course I'm talking my own book, but there's no business I can think of that couldn't use it. It's mad. You know, the cost savings are insane and you're providing amazing sales thing. I, I, yeah, no, it's amazing. It's a, it's a win-win. I come back to the whole sales thing. I think everyone perceives it as a vitamin and I'm really like, this is a painkiller. This will transform your business and, you know, significantly cut costs. You you need to start this today. Whereas I think everyone sort of puts it in the bucket of, you know, this is kind of polishing the, the org chart a little bit and we'll get around to that next year. Mm-hmm. Do you find that? Like it's never a priority, is it? And because I suppose it's going into um, pushing into the dark a little bit, people just put it off for the next quarter or next half. Yeah, I think as well. I mean, people naturally want to hang on to their own turf. You know, I think um, I, I'm a naturally quite a lazy person. Now, you might think that's hilarious given I've built this big business, but I actually think this is like a superpower of mine where, and I wish more people were like this. I'm like, if I find myself working too much or if I find myself doing something more than once or twice, my immediate thought is, how do I delegate this? Where I think other people just tend to work more, work harder, work more, work, you know, rather than thinking, how do I become more efficient, you know, in myself? Uh, And part of that is delegation. Part of that is systems and tools and process mapping and, you know, finding the easiest pathway. Um, And and I think people still seem to struggle with that. They seem to still want to put in more hours and push harder. And I just fundamentally don't think you need to do that to get the results. I think you need to be more clever. And I think people need to change Mm -hmm. their mindset a bit about that. How have you seen, you know, obviously we had COVID, uh, things are moving more towards remote. So have you seen a big difference in people's uh, tolerance, acceptance, appreciation for remote work? 
Yes, uh, I have. But I, I guess there's a big swing in the other direction happening right now online. I mean, if you're following, you know, on LinkedIn and Twitter, there's these huge debates going on around back to the office and the calls to return. I, I think, you know, people who are fighting it and saying, what's the point in going back to the office? We all proved during COVID we could do it. Uh, I think are not listening to the Okay, I, th I think the problem actually is not the remote work uh, as such. Like you said earlier with the org chart and the old office, I think the way businesses operate didn't move. Everyone just went to work from home and had to make it work. But the operational frameworks didn't change. The tool stack, the way we work didn't change. And in order for us to have fully remote and to make uh, location irrelevant, whether you're in an office or somewhere else doesn't actually matter. Like, let's forget remote. Let's just, just call it location irrelevant. Um, the actual operational frameworks need to change. Uh, and we're not there yet. The world is not there yet. People are not there yet. I don't think people realize as well the level of transparency that is needed for a remote setting to work. So people will say, oh, but you should just trust your people. I'm like, well, how about we forget trust? Because that's a bit emotional and a bit subjective. Why don't we just build trustless environments where it is irrelevant and and i could that's hard to unpack right now because we've only got a couple of minutes but you want to make location irrelevant and trust irrelevant and i the, the world is not there yet most businesses are not built that way is that progressively making the individual worker less relevant then if you're almost sort of creating systems where you know it's piecemeal and anyone can do it it's completely trustless does that ultimately make the individual contributor less relevant and, and it, they can just be productized? No, I don't think so. I, I think what I mean by saying that is, for example, let's say you've got a, uh, let's say you've got somebody running a sales function or whatever, you know, and, and what you've got to do, and this is why, where objectives and key results are very powerful. If you set the correct objectives and key results within a company, within a department, and then for a role, and then you tie the work that's getting done, projects, or whatever the hell the work is that that is driving those results, if you connect that work to the result and you have a platform like Asana, for example, we're big fans of Asana, we are an Asana partner, but I've built the entire company on this. Asana, for me, is like a central location in the cloud, which replaces the office. It's where everyone shows up to work, everyone does work, everyone collaborates on work, and everyone reports on work. And it replaces, if you build it properly, it can replace the old office, what the office gave us essentially. And when people are doing their work, now you actually don't care when they do it, how they do it, really. It depends on the role, the level they're at. As long as that you can see, is the result being driven? Are we on track or off track? And if we're off track, what's the roadblock? So we can have a meeting now about the roadblock and now not about you updating me on where you're at. See what I mean? You reduce the number of meetings by doing that and you reduce the need to know everything because you can see whether the result is moving in the right direction or not. And that's where you have dashboards and metrics. Now, maybe that is a bit too systems minded for some people, but I just think at the end of the day in business, we, we have results we're trying to achieve and we're either on track or off track on the result. And if we're off track, we need to talk about what is the roadblock so that we can then as a team collaborate on how do we deal with the roadblock. And if the roadblock turns out to be that this person is not good enough for the role, then you ask, is it a skill issue or a will issue? Is it training? Is it the wrong person in the wrong seat? You know, that's how you expose the right questions to ask. And you don't need 
to trust that they know what they're doing because maybe they think they know what they're doing, but actually they don't. Relying on uh, the the central system requires everyone to be 100% compliant with using yes. and entering sort of their activity in the system. Do you struggle with that? You know, when you onboard new key people, critical people, that they have to sort of learn this? Is it kind of intuitive or do you find you have to kind of remind and, and force people to use it for the first three months until it becomes habitual? I think this is part of culture. So for example, how we do it is when somebody enters our culture, it's very, it's very apparent how we operate and we have rules. Now that might sound a bit schoolyardish, but if you think about this for a second, if you want to be a high performance team, somebody enters the team, they can't just go off and play the game in their own way, or they can't row the boat at a different speed to the other people. We all have to collaborate on the way that we do things, not just that we all might play a different role, but how this company operates and how we as a team operate this company needs to be fully understood. And then if that's very clear from day one, you can even punch it into your kind of recruiting on the front end. So people are very clear, aware that they're entering something. It means that you stop that feeling of, hold on a sec, I took this job and this isn't what I thought it was going to be. And you want to avoid that. You want people to be joining a culture and to resonate and to be magnetically attracted to the way that you do things in this company. And I think most people, particularly A players, like to join well-organized, well-run. They, they like to run things that, like people want to join the Ferrari. They don't want to join, you know, they don't want to be the A player joining the scooter. They want the Ferrari. And it's our job as business owners and visionaries and entrepreneurs to create the Ferrari that the A players can then drive, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, no, very clear. One of, the, one of the biggest trends, of course, for 2023 is AI. So, you know, again, it's mm -hmm. just another tool, but it, it's kind of an, an extension of all of these tools, isn't it? How have you seen, I suppose for your organization, but then also your client staff, the adoption of these tools? Now, of course, there's the specific tools like ChatGPT and whether people are sort of adopting those. But then, of course, all of the, this technology is embedded in a lot of the existing tools, maybe like Asana and Notion and Grammarly mm -hmm. and... Um, docs and things like that. So um, how have you seen the roles evolve over the last 12 months? Do you, is it dramatic or are you just seeing sort of little optimizations here and there? Yeah, that's an interesting one. When it came out first and ChatGPT launched, I will share that I, I think I had about three or four weeks of no sleep. I just thought we're dead. The, the industry's gone. <laughs> like VA, no, this is gone, right? I really, you know, it was like an existential threat. And then after a while, I mean, when new technologies come out, I have noticed this over the years, you know, there'll be a big flurry and then at some point it plateaus for a bit and everyone takes a breath. And I feel like everyone did that a few months ago where it, you know, it was moving very fast and it's still moving fast, but we've sort of plateaued a bit in, in, in where we're at, people understanding it. And we've realized that this is a great tool to augment people, including VAs, right? So this is great. We can augment our VAs. However, there is a bit of a, it's not a steep learning curve like coding, for example, but it, it's, it's a lot to take in. And I think um, we're training VAs slowly on it and figuring out what bits they can do. And, you know, it, it takes a lot to sift through all of this. And I think businesses, you know, there's a lot of businesses that still haven't even got their head, gotten their heads around the marketing automation of 10 years ago, to be honest. Mm -hmm. I mean, I see businesses still on spreadsheets and I'm like, I mean, AI is, um, is here and we are all going to use it. But I think the adoption of it will be fast, but not as fast as people think in certain businesses. 
So I think we've, we've just got to allow the world to catch up a bit, you know, um, and, and move with it. I mean, it's here, it's not going away. So as business owners, we've got to figure out how to use it. We are using it um, internally, but um, that's a big project that I'm on. It's kind of the next, the future of is where, where I spend my time right now is trying to figure out what we're going to do with that. Well, Barbara, fascinating conversation. Are you optimistic for the future? You still see a lot of growth ahead and a lot of opportunity for the industry and the virtual hub? I think so, yes. I think since remote, uh, you know, since the pandemic, I think it has blown open remote quite nicely. Um, And like I said, I just think more and more businesses are very open to this conversation now where they may not have been in the past. Um, And that's a good thing. You know, it's good for business globally and it's good for the Philippines and all the other, uh, you know, countries that are going to participate in this. And I'm a naturally optimistic person. I think AI will create a massive boom in the world um, productivity wise. And I think that'll be good for everyone, albeit a bit a bit stressful in the transition phase where, where we figure out what we're doing with it. And it's an interesting time with this looming recession, isn't it? Everyone's you know, having mm-hmm. to pull in their belts a little bit and really take stock and really look at costs for the first time in about the first three or four years. So it's... Uh, well, it's they should be looking at offshore sure. because, I mean, why, why would you not look offshore then? I mean, I, that's exactly, for me yeah. just seems like a total no-brainer to, to consider this as a strategy and to really think about it. It's a good reality check. So, Barbara, thank you so much. If anyone wants to get in touch, and of course, I always encourage people to pick up the phone and have a conversation and really see how this can transform their business. Uh, how can they get in touch? How can they learn more? Sure, sure. So if you're ready to have a chat with us, head over to thevirtualhub.com. I know it'll be in the show notes. Book a call with us. We've got some great people you can chat with on the phone. Some of them have been VAs and grew up into great salespeople for us. So you get to actually speak direct to to someone like you might actually uh, work with. Um, we also, our, our site has so much content on it about what I've been speaking about. Um, so you can dive into podcast episodes and everything over there. Um, And also, if you want to hear more, I am doing a lot on LinkedIn, as I shared earlier. Um, So I am expanding all of this, these topics and talking more about this stuff over on LinkedIn. So please come and connect with me there, Barbara Turley on LinkedIn. That was Barbara Turley, the founder and CEO of The Virtual Hub. As always, if you want any of the show notes, go to outsourceaccelerator.com slash podcast. And if you want to send us an email, email us at ask at outsourceaccelerator.com. See you next time.